please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Today we come to a passage which is intrinsically important and increasingly relevant to the world in which we live and to the church in, in, in which we live, church culture around us. It's important to understand just how very close we are in our time to the spirit of the age, which Paul describes here as the latter times. In understanding this, it should fill us with an increasing determination to see what's happening around us and to align ourselves with God and with the Word of God. With the God who has promised that these things should come to pass exhorting us to serve the Lord while there is today, while we have time to be busy about the work because time is short. Today we're going to walk through the first five verses of 1 Timothy 4, and I'd like to begin by reading all of these verses together, enabling us to contemplate the whole message that Paul is giving here, and then we will go back and we'll think on it verse by verse and uh, consider the words and concepts as they present themselves together. You are there, perhaps, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there are some uh, in that back window there uh, to my right, your left. And do feel free to grab a Bible and follow along this morning in it. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That is the five verses that we're considering today. Let's consider them one by one together, beginning in verse 1. I'll read it again. The Bible says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. As Paul speaks to Timothy in his continued instruction regarding the importance of the church, the importance of ministerial leadership, the importance of of ministerial teaching, he turns his attention toward the spirit of the age and particularly the end of the age and how that is going to affect the church. And I I want you to take careful note of that, that as we are walking through this context, in, in 2 Timothy, we see a context that's a little bit more about the world as it relates to the end times. But here, as we look at the spirit of this age, um, he's, he's speaking about the nature of the church here, and we'll see why that seems apparent in a few moments. Paul states that the Spirit has spoken expressly. This word meaning directly or plainly about these things. There are any number of things in the Word of God. We just finished kind of an overview of the Bible this morning in our Sunday school time. And of course, an overview of the Bible ends with the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the book of the Revelation, as we did similarly um, in our... um, Sunday morning time over uh, about 14 months. Um, we're, we're about eight months or 10 months removed from that series now. But as we walk through it, we recognize that there are any number of things in the Word of God that are, are obscure, right? They're not clear. That God has uh, left them with some measure of ambiguity. Uh, things which have brought about disagreements and debates 
that we find in Christianity, rooted directly in, uh, um, uh, in, in just different viewpoints, not necessarily reviewed, uh, rooted in carnality or rooted in misunderstanding, but rather in, in the ambiguity with which the Word of God approaches certain topics, uh, the ambiguity within which the Word of God is inspired and penned. In other words, God saw fit not to tell us everything, right? God saw fit not to tell us everything. God saw fit to leave some things obscure and to cause us to have to meditate and to contemplate and to live and to learn and to to seek for the truth. We spoke of this with relation to the overall structure of the church, that while we do see a general template in the book of 1 Timothy as it relates to the church, we see that there are bishops, pastors, elders, we see that there are deacons. We see that there is an exhortation unto assembly. Uh, we see that there is this structure and this order. Yet, by and large, the, the nitty-gritty of that is left unspoken in the Word of God. And, and it seems as though that's intentional. Giving each culture, giving each context the freedom, the liberty to minister in the way that, that is best. But Paul tells us here, that the Spirit has spoken expressly, that there's no ambiguity with relation to the words that Paul is about to pen under inspiration of the Spirit of God. And this is important because in many ways what the Spirit is going to tell us sounds kind of crazy, sounds unrealistic. Maybe not so much today as perhaps 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, but kind of crazy nonetheless. And so Paul wants us to know that the Spirit has been very clear about this. And the Spirit speaking is directed in reference to what Paul calls the latter times. Now, those of you who have been following in our Jeremiah series know that there has been a phrase in Jeremiah that I've told you. When you hear that phrase, perk your ears a little bit because that's a prophetic marker. That's something that helps us know that there's some long-term, long-distance, end-times ideas in play here. And the phrase in Jeremiah is the latter days. Now we find here this phrase in the New Testament, latter times. Now that phrase, the latter days in the Old Testament, that should cause us to immediately be thinking about end times prophecy. It's found 11 times in the Old Testament. It begins in Numbers chapter 24, when Balaam is trying his dead level best to curse the nation of Israel. And it's not working. And he speaks about what will befall Israel in the latter times. And it goes all the way through to Hosea chapter 3 verse 5. God's promise of faithfulness to Israel. And all 11 times that phrase is used, it is invoking some reference to the final age, that would be the age in which we are, the church age, and generally speaking, a look toward the very end of that age, what we would often call the 70th week of Daniel or the tribulation time, the end times. To that end, when Paul speaks of the latter times, when we read of the characteristics of these latter times, what we know is that we are considering the age in which we live and particularly the end of this age. Those signs that will show us that we are coming quickly toward the end. And remember the context here. Remember this context. He says, his warning is that in these latter times, some would depart from the faith. That word depart there, it speaks of leaving or removing oneself, carrying the flavor of desertion or, de- uh, or, or, or defection. 
It is speaking toward those who, are, who, who have a relationship to the faith and who are defecting or who are deserting, who know some measure of the faith. And when, when the scriptures, when the New Testament speaks of the faith, it's speaking of being born again. It's speaking of sound doctrine. And they will walk away from sound doctrine. And so remember here, the context is Paul writing to a minister about how he can help the church of Ephesus. And as he's writing to a minister, he's speaking about things from a ministerial perspective, from a ministerial con- uh, uh, context. He is warning this minister, Timothy, about what ministers need to be on guard for as they look at the church, as they look at the context of ministry. And he says, in these latter times, what you're going to find is that there are going to be those who depart from the faith. And he's going to give a description of some things which are wholly indicative of the unbelieving world, particularly in relation to the time and place in which we now find ourselves. So the warning is to pastors, of which Timothy is one, to keep his eyes upon the spirit of the age to exhort his people against the seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils that will come to define the world and will thus allure people out of the faith and into deception. And these seducing spirits, that word seducing means to stray, to wander, to roam, to mislead. Spirits that will mislead and teachings that are rooted in satanic ideas rather than in the ideas of truth, in the ideas of the word of God. Now, Paul is not going to to, to dig deeply into what these doctrines of devils are, what these seducing spirits of them are, but what he is going to to, to give are a, a couple of characteristics of these seducing spirits and of these doctrines of devils. And in verse two, we see the first of these characteristics. He says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. The first characteristic of those who will fall for these seducing spirits and doctrines of demons is that they will speak lies, but that these lies will be spoken in utter hypocrisy, that they will make claims that that they will, as we've seen any number of times in any number of false religious systems throughout history, make dramatic claims and levy excessive demands and expectations upon the people who are following those claims that are impractical while simultaneously never actually following them themselves. They will judge others on the basis of things for which they too could be judged, except they're in the position of power, so they have every opportunity to levy in hypocrisy these lies and these claims against others. If that does not already sound like the spirit of our age, you've not been paying attention. If that does not sound like cancel culture, as it's been bubbling up. You're not paying attention. And you're probably feeling a lot better on any given day if you're not paying attention because it's pretty discouraging out there. So people having false claims, lies, and imposing those lies on others, causing others to align themselves with those lies while simultaneously living in hypocrisy, like the Catholic Church of old which sold indulgences so that people could hypocritically live the way they wanted without any fit of conscience because they can just buy their way out. They can make claims but live in hypocrisy to those claims. So too will be the spirit of this age 
in the latter times with the notable history or notable uh, exception or distinction of the fact that while the Catholic Church operated in utter hypocrisy through things such as indulgences, at least they acknowledged sin. In the case of Paul's warnings here about seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, what we'll find is that these lies, these hypocritical lies, will be rooted in humanism rather than in any sort of veneer of the truth. The second characteristic that we see in verse 2 is that they have their consciences seared with a hot iron. It's really kind of an extension of the first. That's how the hypocrisy will be able to be, play out, right? The idea of searing a conscience with a hot iron, branding or perhaps cauterizing a wound. The idea is that you create scar tissue and then you don't feel anymore. You don't have the, uh, the, the, the sensitivity anymore. And so the idea of the consciences being seared with a hot iron is that these consciences are going to lose their sensitivity. What once bothered them will not bother them anymore. What ought to bother them does not bother them. What, what stands in natural opposition to what they claim that, that they're doing seems as though it's not even a contradiction in their minds. Remember, we're talking about those who will depart from the faith here, from the church, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And what they'll find is that their conscience, the God-conscious part of us that testifies of our nature and our fellowship with God, that is at peace when we are in fellowship with Him, and that is at angst or, 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 uh, or, or has a, a measure of discomfort when we're separated from God in fellowship, this conscience will be rendered unsensitive. Perhaps they will still claim Christ, at least in the first generations, and yet they will countenance things, they will allow things, they will ignore things that were unconscionable just a few generations ago to those who knew their Bibles. Once again, if this does not sound like the church of this age, you're not paying attention. Sin will be normalized. Lies will be normalized. Lies and hypocrisy will become normal. And that which should by every measure bother these men and women will not bother them at all. So that while they might claim some connection to spirituality or religion, maybe even to the church, they have departed through seducing spirits and doctrines of devils from the truth. They will be following a set of doctrinal beliefs and living under a spirit which is wholly foreign to the nature of the believer and to the doctrines of the word of God. And all the while, because of the seduction under which they operate, they will see absolutely no contradiction between the spirit under which they operate and whatever vestige of faith they claim. But remember what the spirit testifies. They are these that have departed from the faith. They are these who are under seduction. And this is why Paul is warning Timothy about this in relation to the church. This is written to ministers who are called to watch, who are called to protect the church. Written to the church, which is called to be a pillar and the ground of truth, because you can't be a pillar and the ground of truth if you're comfortable with lies and hypocrisy. Those two are mutually exclusive. Lies and hypocrisy are the exact opposite of the truth. If we are the pillar and the ground of truth, then we must not give way to lies and to hypocrisy. 
We must not give ground to the errors which would seek to cause the church to live in blatant contradiction to its own purpose. Paul then goes on to describe another more specific set of characteristics as it relates to these seducing spirits and these doctrines of devils. And uh, keep your thinking caps on as we walk through these characteristics together. While speaking lies and hypocrisy, while having their consciences seared, and and, uh, while while we see these characteristics, they're quite general in nature. Really, in, in many ways, those could be applied to almost every age, couldn't they? There has been any number of religious vestiges in any, in any age. We already mentioned the Catholic Church and, and the time where they were selling indulgences and, and where uh, the leaders existed only to um, uh, lavish themselves at the expense of, of the society around them. And we see it in any number of cults throughout the centuries. We see it in Uh, modern-day cults as well. The hypocrisy and the lies and the unsound doctrine, the consciences that are seared. This next set of characteristics that we're going to see is something very unique as it relates particularly to what we would normally classify this under, which is uh, cults or or religious um, error. And that should cause us to help, uh, it should cause us to, to see or to help us understand the nature of this climax at the end of the age. When we see a faction within the faith that is seduced by doctrines of devils to this degree, it's a warning to us. Verse 3 Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The specific characteristics of this doctrine of devils that will crop up within the church at the end times as they depart, as people depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, will run along two distinct, but I think we'll see interrelated lines. First, that these who depart from the faith will forbid marrying. That they have this thing uh, which has characteristically been the bedrock of the church, and certainly every, almost every culture, but particularly the Christian church, marriage will be discouraged, will be forbidden, will be prevented, will be hindered. Marriage is very important to a society, isn't it? And it's even more important to the church. Marriage is important to the church because it's a relationship that's intended to reflect the love of Christ for his church. It's a means by which, it's, it's the first and fundamental means by which we teach our children the relationship between Christ and his church. It's the fundamental way that the society around us sees the love of Christ for his church and the submission of the church to Christ. But second, of course, we know that marriage is the institution through which the next generation comes. The next generation is created, protected, and trained through marriage and family. That those who come out depart from the faith, that those who in this time will perhaps even claim vestiges to a measure of faith, but will get behind a spirit of the age that compels people to be forbidden in marriage, will be one of the evidences of the latter times. The second one that we see here is that they will command to abstain from meats. 
Now, the word meat here does not exp- explicitly mean flesh, like we would uh, think of the word meat today, the flesh of an animal, but rather, more generally, it means something that a person would eat for nourishment. We see this used consistently throughout the King James Bible in this way. Uh, we know in the Old Testament um, that, that uh, cakes or bread was often called meat. The meat offering in the Old Testament was uh, not necessarily always a flesh offering. Sometimes it was a, a flour, a, a, a cake, a breaded offering, even though it was called a meat offering, because the word simply means food, something that one would eat for nourishment. And the idea behind these lying and hypocritical people, the spirit of this age, the doctrines of devil, will be a compulsion that demands that people not eat certain foods. Whether this is the idea here is falling back on um, some uh, legalistic interpretation of eating, such as we might find um, uh, among certain people today, um, where uh, maybe a Judaistic idea of, of, of clean and unclean meats, or whether it be kind of the vegan idea of refusing animal flesh, a vegan diet idea. Um, naturally, Paul does not tell us what this is going to look like. Only that those things which God has created to be received with thanksgiving in the world by the church, that which God has freed us among uh, uh, those in the church. And remember, this is a church context here. This is not observing the unbelieving world. This is observing those who understand the doctrines of the faith. And there's going to be this departure whereby there's going to be a for, a, an abstaining from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. That's our context, them which believe and know the truth. So these are going to be among people who understand the truth. It doesn't say they're believers or unbelievers, but it does say that they understand the truth. God has created these things to be enjoyed. Now, when, he, when we see this, this idea invoked, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, that brings us back to the thoughts of 1 Corinthians and Romans as it relates to the eating of meat, right? Offered to idols. And to that extent, it seems likely that what Paul is referencing here is flesh. Because there's the debate in 1 Corinthians, and and we'll, we'll reference that in just a moment. There's the debate in 1 Corinthians, there's the debate in Romans about eating meat, eating meat that is... Uh, Some eat meat, some will just eat herbs, right? Romans tells us. And then in 1 Corinthians, that some will eat meat offered to idols, some will not. And at the end of it, God has, uh, Paul emphasizes the spirit of Christ reminding us that all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. And so we see a very similar tone and a very similar tenor to this conversation. And Paul spends the next couple of verses expounding upon this point. He says in verses 4 and 5, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. As I mentioned, we spent much time during our law series at the beginning in 1 Timothy considering the essence of this principle, that within the scope of the law given to Moses on Sinai, there were certain regulations which God had put in place for a very specific reason. But that for we who rest in Christ, under the covenant of grace, the things which God has made in this world are not in and of themselves unclean. Nothing to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. That's why the church is not characteristically of the opinion that we need to 
follow the Old Testament laws that relates to clean and unclean animals. That's why we don't uh, necessarily all hearken back to the um, pre-Diluvian idea, the pre-Noah days idea of eating only herbs. Because we have the right in Christ, we have been given the right in Christ to enjoy these things, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And naturally, we were and we are careful to qualify these statements with further scriptural considerations. Remember, we always interpret scripture in light of scripture. We always take that which is clear and use it as our foundation to go to that which is unclear. And we do so confidently because we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And thus all scripture is profitable. Profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. To this end, we have full faith that the word of God does not, never has, and never will operate in contradiction to itself so that we can confidently use scripture to interpret scripture. Confidently take that which is clear and use it as the foundation to build upon those things which are unclear. And thus have full confidence to interpret the word of God in light of itself as we seek clarity and meaning. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke on this topic excessively. We uh, addressed it significantly more at the beginning of 1 Timothy. I'm not going to address it in the same way again. But there are two verses that I want to remind you about in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and we mentioned this last week, right? We mentioned this just last week. Paul says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And in the chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, remember as we discussed it last week, uh, Paul was talking about um, all things being lawful, and he was actually contrasting it with things which are not, Right? He doesn't mean here that God allows for any action, any perversion, that all things in the world are right before God, but rather that everything that God has created has a lawful use. And when we identify that lawful use, then it is perfectly right for me to enjoy it within its lawful use. So God has created, as we talked about last week, uh, the, the context of 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of fornication. God has created the body and its sexuality for a particular reason. And within that particular context, it is lawful. Outside of that context, it's not. God has created our bodies to digest certain foods. And if our body is created to digest certain foods and those foods are created to be digested, then it is fine for us to do it. It's lawful. But then there are certain things that our body is not created to be digested. And even within the bounds of that which is lawful, just because it's lawful, he says here, doesn't mean it's expedient. And we talked about that with food as well, right? Just because a food is, is meant to be digested does not mean I should consume it. Ice cream, pizza, cookies, they're designed to be eaten, but that doesn't mean I should always eat them, right? Because it may be lawful, but it's not expedient, it may be lawful, but it could also bring me under the power of something that I don't want to be brought under the power of. Food is meant to be eaten, but if I'm a glutton, I am brought under the power of food, under the power of my fleshly appetite, then I have gone outside of God's prescription, God's freedom in it. And the same can be said of everything that God has created. It is that God has created these things to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. 
And so we talked about that last week. That meat's for the belly, the belly's for meat. We're not going to rehash that as we talk through it. But Paul's second consideration is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So remember, the first one there is, even if something is lawful for me, that doesn't mean I'm going to allow it to control me. Right? It's lawful for me to drink coffee, but I don't necessarily want to be under the control of caffeine to where I need caffeine in order to function. So it may be lawful, but it's not expedient. The second one considers others. So the first one is about me and how I relate to the lawful things. The second consideration here in 1 Corinthians 10 is about others. All things might be lawful for me, but if I use my rights under Christ and I I use them without regard for my brother or sister whose conscience might be uh, weaker, as the scriptures say, more sensitive, Uh, if I just go like a bull in a china shop through my liberties, running over anyone else in the process, then I have walked uncharitably toward my brother. And I'm in the wrong. That's what we often call the weaker brethren principle. That there are things which I can do which are lawful for me, which conform both to God's design and to their natural intent, and I've not been brought under the power of it, so I'm, I'm right to do it and I'm not imbalanced in it, but which in doing so would cause a brother to to falter, would not edify a brother. And the example that Paul gives here, we're not going to go there, but the example Paul gives, as we taught it in the beginning of 1 1 Timothy, is eating meat sacrificed to idols. That though the meat, I can eat it, and if I eat it with thanksgiving, it's offered to idols, the meat is still meat. It has not fundamentally changed its structure, right? Right? There's no fundamental difference in the meat, whether or not someone has dedicated it to an idol or not. And an idol is just a stone or it's just a precious metal. It's nothing in this world. And we know that. And so I can eat that without a fit of conscience and I can do, I can do it and that's fine. Meat's meant to be eaten. I'm eating meat. But if there's another with me whose faith might be negatively affected by my actions whether that's another brother who who has a a more sensitive conscience or whether that's an unbeliever who's looking at you and saying, how's this guy's testimony? Does this guy actually believe what he preaches? And maybe they don't understand the word of God properly, right? And they don't understand grace and they don't understand all those things. And they come up to you and they say, well, here's your meat. By the way, I dedicated this meat to Diana before I gave it to you. Well, it's certainly not going to help them in their their journey to the truth for me to say, great, and just to slam it down, right? So even though something is lawful, it may not edify, and I would do well to abstain. It is within this same context that Paul speaks here in 1 Timothy 4. Very similar flavor, that God has created these things and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And why? Because it is sanctified by the word of God, and by prayer. This falls very much in line with the message of Ecclesiastes, if you remember when we preached through Ecclesiastes, a book which is often understood to be a a book of nihilism, in other words, a book uh, of meaninglessness, that, that life is meaningless, but is absolutely not the case at all. Solomon just says it's meaningless outside of God. But in God, it is meant to be loved and enjoyed to the full. At its root, it teaches that apart from God, the things of this world simply don't satisfy. 
They are not and they can never be enough. But in God, through God, the things of this world are ours to enjoy. So Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. It's a gift from God to enjoy this created world. It's a gift from God to enjoy the, the things that God has created. Nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. It's a gift from God, the, the, the blessing of eating good food, the blessing of being able to use our bodies to the fullest, to push our bodies, to, to um, exert our energy and our capacities. It's a gift of God that God has made us so skillful and so capable as humans. These are, these are gifts from God. Every creature is good as it's used as it's supposed to be used and received with thanksgiving. And to this, Paul gives this twofold standard by which the things of God are sanctified. That word sanctified means to make holy or to cleanse. So what is the twofold standard by which even meat that is sacrificed to idols can be holy, can be sanctified, so that when 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, I can rest assured that I'm still doing this to the glory of God. Well, it's sanctified by two processes in my heart. The first one is Understanding of the Word of God, and the second is prayer. Understanding the Word of God. This is the lawful part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10. All things are lawful. That the thing is not being used as a perversion of God's design, but aligned with God's design. That if I am about to do something, about to engage in something, and the question is first, is it lawful? Is this the way God designed it to work? Is this God's design, or is this sin's twisting? of God's design? Is this sin taking what God initially designed in me, which was right and pure, and, and distorting it, and making it something else, and perverting its purpose? If it's perverting its purpose, then, then it's, already, it's already failed the lawful standard, right? It is not sanctified by the Word of God, because the Word of God makes clear that this is something that is not right. So the first thing is the objective standard of the Word of God. Is it right? Is it, is it in alignment with the character of God? That is how it's sanctified by the Word of God. And then the second standard here is the expedient standard. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. That once something is lawful, the Word of God does not prohibit it. The question, secondly, is does it conform to my testimony to my conscience, to the edification of a brother? Is it expedient for me to do? Is it what is best for me? This is the good, better, or best standard when we talk about decision, biblical decision-making for those of you that have been through that teaching with me on Tuesday nights. Is this best? Is it expedient? Just because I can do something doesn't mean I should. Right? Right? So you sanctify it first by the Word of God. You filter it through the Word of God, and if it doesn't come out clean on the other side, you don't do it. Then you filter it through prayer. 
Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, what is best? Lord, what is best for my testimony? Lord, who might be watching? Lord, who should I edify? Lord, will this edify? Will this be best? Will this be best for my children? Will this be a good example for them? Or even though maybe I can do it, should I not for the sake of them? Should I not for the sake of those folks in the church who have, have a, a more sensitive conscience and would struggle with that? Should I not for the sake of that unbelieving neighbor who knows that I'm a believer, who gets the tract when I hand it out, who, 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 who I've been very forthwith and I've had great opportunities to talk with them. And should I abstain from something that I could otherwise do because they may misunderstand and it might mar the testimony of Christ before them. It may not be expedient. But if, if something is sanctified both by the word of God and by prayer, then it is nothing to be refused. But not in the spirit of this age. In the spirit of the age of which Paul speaks. They will not regard that. They will not regard God opening up the the opportunity for us to use things lawfully. They will not regard that, that grace. And whether this is a Christian, or not a Christian, but a church idea, kind of like we said, like the legalist idea, or whether this is a secular idea, Paul does not speak to. But within this twofold standard of decision-making, I find the freedom to enjoy the things that this world has to offer in the Lord without contradiction, without shame, or without uh, any measure of conviction. This is not the case among those who depart from the faith. They will impose false and hypocritical expectations upon themselves and others while simultaneously excusing those things which are perversions of God's design and intent. They'll excuse the perversions, but they'll make big mountains out of, the, uh, out of molehills. They'll live in, in hypocrisy. They'll live in lies. They won't even practice what they preach. And then they'll, because their consciences are seared, they will excuse things that are absolutely inexcusable according to the word of God. So Timothy is warned and called to teach the ministers in the church of Ephesus this danger. Now, we do not know what the final form of this, what, what the Spirit, as the Spirit looks ahead, will look like. But as I study this pas- passage, there is a particular contemporary movement which becomes such a good example of this that I want to bring it up to you today. I am not saying, please, please hear me clearly on this, I'm not saying that, that the movement that I'm speaking of is what Paul is saying, is what the Spirit is pointing to. But it bears, it bears the spirit of this age. It bears the spirit of this warning to the T. And to that, to that end, I think it's a very good example for us of what this could look like and of the kinds of things to look for. We're going to take it and we're going to use this example to help us understand what this idea looks like. And the example uh, that I want to bring up is the eco-fascist movement that has taken the airwaves by storm, particularly in the lead up to this next year's election. Sometimes called the Green Movement. It's really an eco-fascism movement. It began as a movement, and really it's not a movement anymore. It's, 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 it's a religious cult. It contains all the trappings of religion with notable ac- uh, rejection of access to forgiveness, grace, or redemption. The root of the eco-fascist movement centers around the claims of climate change and climate alarmism. 
And what I'd like to do is navigate you through a very basic understanding. Don't shut down on me here. Navigate you through a very basic understanding of how the eco-fascist movement has gone from a, simply a political power grab, which is what it's been for decades, to an actual religious movement that bears all the marks of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Thus making it an excellent example of the kinds of things that Paul is warning against in the latter times. And we begin this understanding this contemplation by recognizing just how little all of the people making these claims about climate change understand what's going on in the climate. There's a trail of what is at best confusion, what is at worst lies, intended to instill in people panic and in doing so to seize control. Control of governments, control of economies, control of culture. And I'd like you to walk through a little bit of an understanding of this. The history of climate science alarmism through a compilation of newspaper headlines beginning in the 1960s. January 30th, 1961 in the New York Times. Scientists agree the world is colder, but climate experts meeting here fail to agree on the reasons for the change. An assembly of specialists from several continents seem to have reached unanimous agreement on only one point. It's getting colder. 1961. It's getting a lot colder, the papers tell us. New York Times, July 18th, 1970. U.S. and Soviet press studies of a colder Arctic. This article, 1970, January 11th, Washington Post. Colder winters held dawn of new ice age. Again, U.S. scientists sees new ice age coming. 19, late 1960s, this is 1971, July 9th. Here's a letter from Brown University to the president. December 3rd, 1972. Dear Mr. President, aware of your deep concerns with the future of the world, we feel uh, obliged to inform you on the results of the scientific conference held here recently. The conference dealt with the... Uh, past and future changes of climate and was attended by 42 top American and um, uh, international investigators. It goes on to say, the main conclusion of the meeting was that the global deterioration of climate by order of magnitude larger than any hitherto experienced by civilized mankind is a very real possibility and indeed may be due very soon. The cooling has natural cause and falls within... Uh, the processes which produced the last ice age. This is a surprising result based largely on recent studies of deep sea sediments. Existing data still do not allow forecast of the precise timing of the predicted developments, nor the management of man's interference with these natural trends. It could not be excluded, however, that the cooling now underway in the northern hemisphere is the start of an ex uh, expected shift. The present rate of the cooling seems fast enough to bring glacial temperatures in about a century if continuing at the present pace. 1972. Science News. Article 1973. The Ice Age Cometh. There's a man in this time, Dr. Ehrlich, an ecologist, he writes, giving aspirins to cancer victims is what Paul R. 
Ehrlich thinks of current proposals for pollution control, no real action has been taken to save the environment, he maintains. And it does need saving. Ehrlich predicts that the oceans will be as dead as Lake Erie in less than a decade. He predicted this in 1970. The DDT in our fatty tissues has reached levels high enough to cause brain damage and cirrhosis of the liver. Americans will be subject to water rationing by 1974 and food rationing by 1980. Say, ah, just one guy. Dire forecast, famine by 1975. This is Paul Ehrlich again giving this forecast. And notice what he said here. He says the population of the United States is already too big that birth control may have to be accomplished by making it involuntary and by putting sterilizing agents into staple foods and drinking water and that the Roman Catholic Church should be pressured into going along with routine measures of population control. Well, that was just one kook in the 1970s. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here we are, May 1st, 2013, the 81-year-old Ehrlich, a professor at Stanford University, spurred the growth of new fields of science and called attention to environmental problems through his work on overpopulation, evolutionary biology, and conservation. Addressed a packed ballroom at the University of Vermont on Tuesday, Ehrlich, who paced back and forth across the stage, ignoring the podium, started by saying, I believe, and all my colleagues believe that we are on a straightforward course to a collapse of our civilization. He cited signs such as diminishing returns from natural resources and said that he said were recognizable from studying the collapse of other civilizations throughout history. Of course, the famine thing that he said from 1975, that didn't pan out, and the, the rationing by 1980 didn't pan out, and the ice age that he said was coming didn't pan out, but, but you know, now he should be listened to in 2013. I'm not trying to mock this. I'll, I'll show you why in just a moment. We continue. April 28, 1975, the cooling world. Solutions proposed, such as melting the Arctic ice caps by covering it with black soot. We've got to melt the ice caps now to keep the, the, the world from cooling too fast. Space satellites show new ice age coming fast. January 29, 1974. Chicago Tribune, Wednesday, November 25th, 1981. Climatologists now blame recurring droughts and floods on a global cooling trend that could trigger massive tragedies for mankind. September 25th, 1988. The Maldives will be underwater. Sea levels threatening to completely cover the Indian Ocean nation of 1,196 small islands within the next 30 years. Could be sooner if drinking water supplies dry up by 1992, as predicted. And then we have this article, and I don't know that you can read this one very well. Wednesday, January 25th, 1899, all right? Now we're going back in time to the 1800s. And here they were recording all of the known heat waves from history. 1303, the Rhine, the Loire, and the Seine dry, ran dry, the rivers. New York, 1853, during that week, 214 people were killed due to sunstroke. France, uh, 1718, many shops had to close. Theaters did not open their doors for three months. Not a drop of water fell during six months. In 1773, the thermostat rose to 118 degrees. So we have in the 1300s it being so hot that rivers are drying up. 
We have in the 1700s it hitting 118 degrees in France and people dying and shops being closed for months on end because it didn't rain for six months. Then we go 200 years later into the 1970s and we have a new ice age coming. And that new ice age is threatening the world and we need to start sterilizing populations in order to deal with the problems because we're going to run into food shortages and droughts. And then we hit the 90s and the 2000s and now it's no longer global cooling, now it's global warming. And then that doesn't work because we have all of these newspapers now so it's called global climate change. And we have poor young ladies 16-year-old young ladies that ought to be in school that are now traveling the world, drumming up mass hysteria, talking about how her future has been stolen from her and she has nothing left. Do you remember the acid rain scare in the 80s? I remember learning about that in the 80s and 90s in, in, in elementary school that our environment will be unlivable. Thursday, February 7th, 1980. Highly corrosive acid rain is serious threat to Pennsylvania. What is frightening, a lot of scientists, says Dr. George Hendry, a researcher at Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island, which serves as a research arm for the 10 largest Eastern universities, is it's a lot worse than we thought. The Carter administration has asked Congress for 10-year, $100 million in federal aid, federal acid rain assessment program. August 11th, 1975, the Windsor Star, Berkeley, California, the United States is threatened far more by hazards of too much energy too soon than by the hazards of too little energy too late. Too much energy. We've got to pare down our energy production. My point in giving you this is not to give you a science symposium. And I'm not even attempting to debunk climate change or climate alarmism. That's not my point here today. You can do your own research. You can come to your own conclusions. It's not my field of expertise by far. But what I do want you to see, climate alarmism has been around for a long time. Far before the democratic debate on climate change in September. Far before the Green New Deal. And... What we find in all of these articles is that climate change alarmism has always been an excuse for several things. See, because it can't be proven. It's a theory that has no capacity to be proven until you're dead, right? All of your research and stuff, it just takes time. Climates change. So because it can't be proven, it's the perfect foundation for a power grab. And that has been what is uh, climate alarmism has always been sought to, uh, seeking to do, a rapid halt of economic development, uh, a takeover and centralization of economies, call for massive and dramatic social changes to curb impending disaster. Don't think, just act. A pretext for some measure of euthanasia, sterilization, murder, population control. Massive amounts of money in the forms of research and grants to study the effects of something which is always changing and of which everyone will die of old age before any true conclusions can be reached. And this has risen in our society to a fevered pitch surrounding the 2020 elections with no end in sight. First call for a global cooling, so much so that we need to melt the ice caps to warm up the planet. And then for global warming, so that we need to cool things down. 
Now global climate change, but still within the warning that, it, that the earth is projected to rise in global temperature, right? So it's global climate change now, but the warning is a rise, right? A rise in temperature between one and six degrees Celsius with dramatic changes to the environment and ecosystems. As one young lady said a few weeks ago, entire ecosystems are collapsing. And now the UN has decided that the danger of climate change will be irreversible if we don't act within 12 years. We have 12 years to limit climate change catastrophe, warns the UN. The world was just issued a 12-year ultimatum on climate change. And that came out this past year. The earth will start becoming a desert by 2050 if global warming isn't stopped, study says. More than 25% of the earth will experience serious drought and desertification by year 2050 if the attempts made by the Paris Climate Agreement to curb global warming are not met, according to a new study. Just 50 years after all those studies that said we're going into a new ice age. This has led, as I mentioned, to alarmism at a fevered pitch with news media focusing upon an incessantly and pub, uh, 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 just this, this idea of publicly shaming non-believers. Climate change deniers, they're called. The government is being called upon to, to enforce upon private businesses regulations that will centralize the economy. Of course, our poor children are being terrified about the end of the world. Huge amount of money being given over to people studying sustainable development. And before I link this to 1 Timothy 4, please let me again make something clear. The fundamental disconnect between the way Christians see the world and the way unbelievers see the world is rooted not in facts. It's rooted in worldviews. The fact of the matter is everybody's looking at the same evidence, but we are interpreting it differently because we have fundamental differences in our worldview. We mentioned this in Sunday school today. Everything else in the world has the same right as I do to look at evidence. From the worldview of Darwinian evolution and humanism, humans are not special. They're no different than anything else in the world. Because there's no God, that means there's no plan and there's no end of days. There's no overarching design. So man will only last as long as his natural resources will allow him to. Within the humanistic, secular worldview, if we don't curb our actions, we will all be destroyed because we will overpopulate the planet, we will destroy the planet, we will strip out its natural resources, and we'll have nothing left. There was even a, a, a famous actor a couple weeks ago that said that humans are effectively parasites on the planet. We come into an environment, we alter it, we strip it of its resources, and then we move on. And that's how they see humans. But here's the thing. If you believe the Bible, then you know that none of this is true. Because the Bible says that God has given us dominion. The Bible says that the earth is made for us. And the Bible looks toward the end of days. We, we know what the end is going to be. And in the end, the earth is still here. Now, there's going to be, in the end of days, famine and pestilence and natural disasters, all brought on by God. And, uh, but until those days, what did God promise Noah in Genesis? That as long as the age, the, the world will continue, there will be springtime and harvest, 
summer, and winter. They're going to continue. The seasons will continue. Things will continue. God has promised it. See, this is a fundamental difference in worldview. Why is it that I can look at this evidence and say, I wonder if we don't have the full picture here. Maybe I should not give away all of my rights and my freedoms to these intellectuals because they say I need to in order to save the world. Maybe because I've read in the book that no intellectual is going to save the world. That God is in control. Now, I reiterate, this does not mean that we ought to be causing intentional harm to our planet. The scriptures tell us that God has given us this planet and that we have been given dominion, that we are stewards of this planet. We are called to tame the world, to use its resources for our benefit. We don't exist for the world. The world exists for us. Now, that's not what humanism says. Humanism says we're an animal just like any other animal. We've got to learn how to get along with other animals. We've got to learn how to coexist because we've got to live here for the next billion years unless we can colonize other planets. That's not what the Bible says, though. So this is a fundamental question of which do you believe is true? Is humanism true or is God true? Is the word of God true? Because you can't have it both ways. And again... There's a, there is a line between rejecting climate alarmism while simultaneously understanding how to be a good steward of our planet. Doesn't mean we should destroy our planet. Doesn't mean we should use it and, and abuse it. If God has given this thing to us, then we ought to take care of it. We ought to take care of it. But we ought not be going around telling the next generation that we're all going to die in 12 years because of fossil fuels. Quick, centralize the government, give all the power into the hands of just a few, and then everything will be solved. Now, I want to walk through 1 Timothy 4 with these principles in mind. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. There's no more obvious expression of hypocrisy in the world than climate alarmism. When powerful people fly their private jets to their private islands to talk about how those islands are going to be covered with water in a few years and to talk about how fossil fuels are destroying the planet, you probably would not have invested in a private island if you thought it was going to be buried. Probably. You probably don't actually believe that fossil fuels are a problem if you're taking your private jet. Could at least jet pool, right? There's hypocrisy there. And what do they do instead? They buy carbon credits to invest in green energies. Sounds very much like a Catholic indulgence. I can sin as long as I've purchased enough indulgences. Sounds very religious to me. Very religious. NBC News had a website a few weeks ago where you could text in to confess your climate sins. So now they have indulgences and they have confession. Sounds pretty religious to me. Except there's one thing that, that this religion doesn't have. It doesn't have redemption. It doesn't have forgiveness. It has penance, but the penance never leads to forgiveness. Sounds very religious, doesn't it? Spend the rest of your life in penance. When the man or the woman lecturing you about not burning leaves in your own backyard owns several homes and flies from coast to coast to hold rallies and speeches to justify it all because of carbon credits, there's hypocrisy there. 
when people go on marches to protest climate change negligence and they record it all on their phones, which are run by lithium batteries, and they drive in their electric cars, which are run by lithium batteries, which rank as one of the highest energy-consuming technologies known to man today and is a limited, non-renewable resource. There's hypocrisy there. And the lies that are spoken are not just spoken, they're spoken in hypocrisy. One of the biggest cited problems related to climate change, according to the UN, is overpopulation. This has been a major topic for a long time, but took a new leap in, 1990, in 1987 excuse me, with the UN proposal of what they called sustainable development. This sustainable development agenda was adopted in 1992 under the agenda called Agenda 21. The concept is rooted in an atheistic worldview that the population of the world is too great for its resources, that we have to find a means by which to find equilibrium uh, and, and to sustain. To this end, they propose a dramatic reduction in human population. Now, this has taken a number of forms over the years. China's one-child policy is one such form. Euthanasia among socialistic medicine. And now that the government has control over the medical uh, the medical system in many countries, they get to choose who lives and dies, and there's nothing that can be done about it through uh, different courts and different panels. Of course, abortion, the killing of the unborn, in, uh, is another form of this. And so we find people taking human lives, and yet they see that taking of human lives is the lesser of two evils because their consciences have been seared with a hot iron. This population control touches on the first major symptom. The second major symptom we find here, forbidding to marry. This idea seems preposterous to a society that actually wants to sustain itself because in order to survive as a species, we have to reproduce. And yet sustainable development has for years been seeking, as we've said, to control the population. China's one-child policy is one of the most obvious and dramatic uh, examples of this, and and it failed, by the way. They They have... removed that policy because it failed. Agenda 21 is best reflected in what are called the Georgia Guidestones. The Georgia Guidestones are set up in Elbert County in Georgia. Upon them are laid out, chiseled into granite, 10 guides, you might say 10 commandments, sounds very religious, doesn't it? That are intended to be an indelible message to mankind about the future. Upon these stones is a message that says the world must reduce its population to a sustainable population of 500 million. That's a lot of dead people to get down to 500 million. If it wants to maintain balance with nature, it also calls for a one-world government on these stones, subservience of local governance to international rulers, one-world language, basically everything that the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the end times. But it's the population control that roots us in 1 Timothy 4. The breakdown of the family unit, which forms the first line of defense against authoritarianism, the relationship and the structure of the father, the mother, and the child rooted in God's design, and how it's under attack through abortion, through the sodomite agenda, through the transgender push, and through the perversion of modern medicine to push euthanasia and abortion. Unless we think this is only fringe stuff, it most certainly is not. I mean, anyone who, who reads the news now knows this is, this is front page headlines. This is, this is uh, agenda number one for a large portion of this country. Perhaps you listened to the climate crisis debate this last September for the Democratic debate. The Climate Change Town Hall, I think they called it. Consider this exchange between one of the audience members and Bernie Sanders. 
She says human population growth has more than doubled in the past 50 years. The planet cannot sustain this growth. I realize this is a poisonous topic for politicians, but it is crucial to face empowering women and edu- which means abortion. Empowering women means killing babies. Um, and educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and to make it a key feature of the plan to address climate catastrophe? Will you make abortion and euthanasia, climate, uh, population control, a key feature of climate change? He, she asks Bernie Sanders. He says this, yes. And the answer has everything to do with the fact that women in the USA, by the way, have a right to control their own bodies and to make reproductive decisions. All, of course, just euphemisms for killing their children. And the Mexico City Agreement, which denies American aid to those organizations around the world that allow women to have abortions or even get involved in birth control, to me is totally absurd. So I think, especially in poor countries around the world, where women do not necessarily want to have large numbers of babies and where they can have the opportunity to control the number of kids they have is something I very very strongly support. So this is mainstream. Dramatic population control. Now the second symptom we find here is the abstaining from meats. Right? Commanding to abstain from meats. And once again, this has become very mainstream, very quickly. Here we find an article, an exchange from just this year. If you care about climate change, you should stop eating meat. Another article, huge reduction to meat eating essential to avoid climate breakdown. You can go online and you can find all the the climate change protesters and what they'll say is if we could all go vegan overnight, we would solve 70-something percent, I think is the statistic they generally use, I don't know where they pull it from, of our fossil fuel problem. We've got to be vegan or else climate change. Now, once again, my point here is not to say eco-fascism and climate alarmism is what Paul is warning about, but this all lines up. This is the spirit of the age that lines up with the Holy Spirit's warnings. And you need to look, you don't need to look too far today to find that the church is being pulled directly into this conversation. That people are saying, oh, if stewardship is what God has called us to do and God has given us this earth, then I am going to make the leap, A plus B equals Z, to climate change must be real and we must do all of these things that the scientists are saying without ever considering the disparity between a humanistic worldview and a biblical worldview. Do we believe what the Bible says or do we believe what the scientists say? Now again, their science may not be wrong. But their conclusions, do we believe their conclusions? Can I put it that way? You can believe their science if it's properly tested, reproducible, everything that science is supposed to be. But their conclusions, going all the way, we have, we have, any, we have plenty of precedent to see that their conclusions can be very flawed, regardless of what we believe about the evidence. And that's the point. The Spirit has spoken expressly about the seducing spirits and doctrines of demons indicative of the last days. I don't know if what I've, I gave you what I gave you today as an example to help you connect some dots. But what I exhort you on to today is discernment. 
that everything is sanctified through the word of God and through prayer. So make those your authority. Don't make a politician your authority. Don't make a scientist your authority. Don't make a cultural pundit or a cultural figure, a musician or an actor your authority. Make the word of God your authority. Filter these things through the word of God and prayer. We need to be an aware people, not simply with our eyes open to the spirit of the age, but our eyes open to how the spirit of the age is coming to fruition. Don't simply reject or accept any claim, but filter it through the word of God. Discern it among yourself and then discern it among the body that we may live to the glory of God. And that is my prayer for us today, that we would live as a church to the glory of God, that we would protect ourselves from being deceived by seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and so be compelled to depart from the faith. And maybe one generation among us would not be, but what about the next generation? We need to protect ourselves and one another from error in order that we might remain pure, live in a good conscience with thanksgiving, in all things, enjoying what God has given to us to enjoy as sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.